You are listening to Serve, Protect, Lead, a podcast from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, where you'll hear from law enforcement leaders sharing wisdom, insight, and perspective. My name is David Weinraub. This episode is funded by U.S. Department of Justice's COPS Office, and the department's full disclaimer notice is available at the end of this podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the presentation are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the IACP or the COPS Office. Today, I'm joined by Sydney Doyle, a licensed professional counselor supervisor and nationally board certified counselor. She is the founder of Code for Couples and a spouse of a Texas police officer. Sydney, thank you for joining us today to talk about the dynamic of communication in policing families. Let's get started. What are some foundational communication strategies or styles to any relationship? Um, I would say at the most basic level, we, we have to listen and understand the other person. That's, that's the most foundational. When I think of foundational, I think of that as being the most foundational strategy. We have to understand what the person is saying to be able to respond. Many times in communication, what we're doing is we're hearing the other person, but we're thinking about how we want to respond in the meantime. So when we're listening to the other person, what we really need to be doing is Um, understanding what they're saying, summarizing what they say, um, clarify any questions that you have or get curious about something that you don't get, validate what they're saying. And by that, I mean, I saying things like I can get, I can understand that makes sense to me now. And then the last part of that I would say is uh, using empathy. Uh, because when we empathize, it's a it's a choice, and so we're tapping into emotion. Wow, you sound really passionate about that, or I can tell you're really upset. That provides a, a deeper connection and communication. It's only after you've done that that you can state your own thought. You want to stay out of defending what uh, defending your position, and instead say, "Oh, that's interesting," or "Okay, I get where you are." This is where I am. So you make a new sentence. The other part I would say is stay out of the yes, but. I agree with you, but. So when we do that, what we automatically do is dismiss the other person. And then finally, I think with any communication, we have to be careful of our tone and our facial expressions because they communicate so much, even though it's not verbally. Thanks for providing us with that base information. So how is communication different in a law enforcement relationship? So just like any job, many times what happens on the job or how we have to uh, be on the job spills over, bleeds over into our relationships. And what we're talking about is the brain and how our behavior changes and how our brain changes to accommodate that. So there's a couple different things that I can think of. First of all, Officers, when they're on the job, have to have control. And one of the ways they do this is through their voice and their demeanor. So their tone is a way that they control. And so many times that bleeds over into the relationship. And so the tone comes across as what I call a staccato tone. It's very direct. It's very firm. Trying to communicate something just basic, like I need to speak to you, it comes out as, I need to talk to you now. And and so it comes out of staccato and very stern, which 
feels on the other end as criticism or I'm in trouble. So that starts to alter communication right there. Officers have to hear complaints from people all day, and it's their job to fix whatever's going on. So that is also something that comes over into communication. My own husband, I tell a story about my own husband, about how he moves his hand, like get to the point, and how that at one point in time in our relationship led to just me not talking. I was like, never mind, and I just wouldn't talk about it because he wanted me to not storytell, but... That's a part of the way we communicate many times is I tell a story um, because that connects people. But if, if he's listening to figure out what do I need to fix and get to the point, it, it interrupts the communication process. Another aspect of that also is many times they might say or an officer might say something like, okay, got it, and just move on which can feel dismissive because many times in communication, we're thinking about volleying back and forth. So I'm tossing a ball and the ball needs to be tossed back. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Officers can also hear things as criticism. So if I say, Hey, I'm really struggling with blah, 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 or Hey, I wish you would take out the trash more because I feel overwhelmed. An officer might just say, okay, I got it. And then is left feeling criticized rather than maybe focusing on, oh, wow, I get it. I know you're overwhelmed. So hearing that as criticism often leads to an overarching theme of I can't do anything right in the officer's mind. There's also the aspect of empathy. And empathy, having empathy as an officer can sometimes lead to an incident becoming trauma. However, empathy is really important in relationships because it connects us emotionally. So that can feel dangerous. And I think we're going to talk about that later on in the, in the podcast. It impacts communication though. And then finally, what I thought about too was our officers are trained to react and not to respond. And I, I'm so grateful for that because reacting helps keep them safe reacting and their training and knowing what to do helps keep them safe. What happens when that spills over in home is because they're at home, they're feeling more safe. And so their emotional armor may be off. When they're at home, they, they feel safer. And so many times what they have to do at the job is bypass their limbic brain or their fight or flight response and go to their frontal lobe rather quickly to figure out how am I going to handle the situation. When officers come home, many times that comes off. And so what happens is that they wind up reacting to what's going on in a situation. So a kid spills milk and it's a blow up, oh my gosh, reaction because the fight or flight response has taken over. Whereas at the job, it doesn't necessarily take over. So that winds up setting up a situation of eggshells, especially with spouses. And then in return, spouses then adjust and become conditioned not to necessarily share things that could be negative as um, negative information because their brain is also avoiding the negative. So that react versus respond is huge in relationships and in communication, and it definitely impacts the way we communicate and how it bleeds over into, into home. Thank you. That was, that was great. So you alluded to the uniqueness of the law enforcement relationship. 
Can you go into a little bit more detail on some of the specific reasons that a different approach to communication is needed in these types of relationships? One of the major aspects of this is the conditioning of the brain. Our brains become conditioned based upon our daily lives. It constantly learns. And what it is learning is how to keep us safe. The brain's trained to keep us safe, not make us happy. So our brain is wired to look for danger all of the time. And then it adjusts over and over and over again to that danger. That is an aspect that bleeds over into relationship. And so taking a different approach to communication, like I was talking about react versus respond, is necessary. We really have to, as couples, work to understand that there is an aspect of the brain that's impacted and accommodate it. That doesn't mean that my spouse gets to yell at me and not be held accountable. My spouse needs to say, oh, crap, I screwed that up. Let me come back. As his spouse, I need to be able to say, oh, dang it, that's that stupid conditioning or that's that stupid reaction. Let me give him a minute to think about it and not jump on what is immediately happening. The other aspect of why we need to approach communication different in our relationships is the come down after the shift. And so when officers are on high alert at, at work, um, hypervigilance or vigilance at work, there, there's always a come down. They have to be on, 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 and their brain has to be on looking for danger, constantly scanning. And then when they come home, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So they're constantly scanning. And when they come home, the brain is tired. And so trying to communicate during that time period is not successful. And if spouses aren't aware of that, then we wind up getting frustrated. Or if decisions are trying to be made during that time period it's frustrating. So those are two of the major reasons why we need to have a different approach to the communication. So you mentioned hypervigilance. Can we expand upon hypervigilance and the observe, orient, decide, act loop? Sure, sure, sure. That's the OODA loop is what that is commonly called. So hypervigilance is when our officers go to work, their brain goes on. So many times as spouses, what we see is we see this process that our officer is going through. And I can specifically think about when my husband is getting ready for work and I'm like, oh, it just kicked on. And when he's getting ready, his brain is also getting ready. And so hypervigilance is the process of our brain turning on to a higher level. So many times what's happening is that there is increased levels of cortisol going through the system. And what that does is that is going to make me be able to hear things at a different level, uh, make my eyesight more intense. It's going to make me be able to respond quicker. Dr. Gilmartin says the blues are bluer and the reds are redder. And so it's this really heightened state of arousal that allows an officer to be able to respond in the way that he needs to respond. And so the brain kicks on. What then happens is what I mentioned is that there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so in that the hypervigilance, in that at home what happens is that the officer comes down and the brain needs to decompress. 
And so there's not the type of responding that we would like for them to have because it takes time for them to get to a homeostasis, like a state of normal, if you were. Unfortunately, it takes about 18 hours to have, it takes about 18 hours for that to recover. And many times our officers don't have 18 hours before they go back to work or they're off shift for 18 hours. And as spouses or as families, we get them in a different state. So the brain is recovering and they have to recover. It's not a total choice. I think as a family or with communication, we can make accommodations and our officers can give themselves time to have downtime, but then also work to come out of that in a quicker way. So the OODA loop is the first concept that I learned uh, that there was something else going on with my husband. And this was developed by Air Force Colonel John Boyd, and he applied these concepts in combat. And it's what happens with our spouses on a regular basis or with officers on a regular basis. It's their process of looking around, deciding, and then acting if they need to. So we have observing. They're observing what's going on in any given situation, any time of day. They are then orienting. So orienting is what's in my space? What do I have? What's available to me? Where do I need to stand? I'm going to orient to the room where I can see the whole entire room. We then have decide. Is there anything that I'm seeing that I need to do anything about is do I need to decide that that person is a threat and then the last part of that is in that decision-making process I need to take some kind of action so the OODA loop is going in the brain in a regular basis for them because it's a part of their conditioning that's what keeps them safe it's that constant aspect of our brain where I'm constantly scanning for danger because that's what the brain's job is to do. So it's a process that they have to constantly scan for danger. And we may sometimes do that, but most of the time we don't. Individuals with trauma or that have been through trauma of some kind sometimes do this when they go into a specific situation. With our officers, they do it all the time. And so what that does is it, it kind of preoccupies their brain. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how the OODA loop and hypervigilance affect an officer specifically? So how it affects the officer specifically, um, I talked some about this in regard to the hypervigilance. What happens is when the officer comes down, they are going to appear disengaged. You're going to get minimal responses. Gil Martin sometimes talks about uh, the magic couch is what he calls it, where an officer may just sit on the couch and just try to decompress. And so during that time, an officer can't really listen they they hear, but they're not really engaged to the capacity that you would think you would want them engaged to if you're talking about communication. So they're not really hearing and they're not really engaging, which then makes uh, the officer kind of have minimal response. So it's more like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, as opposed to conversation where we're going back and forth. Hypervigilance can also impact their startle response. So it can also be a part of that where we're talking react versus respond. That is an aspect of, of how the hypervigilance can impact communication. The other way that it can impact the officer is that 
their brain then gets used to those hits, uh, the chemical hits in their brains of that cortisol going off in them. And so their brains can be looking for something to stimulate. Uh, everyday life appears, quote unquote, boring, if you will. So as we're going through our lives and engaging, they're kind of their brain, I should say, their brain is not stimulated in a way that it likes to be stimulated on a regular basis. So they might try to engage in activity to get those hits that they might want. And, and this can be okay at times. Anything is okay in moderation. I want to make sure to say that. And then we can also go into numbing. And so those hits like uh, video games can be something stimulating, but anything in excess can be problems. And so those hits also come in like pornography or flirting and affairs. Um, it can be substances. So it's something that the brain wants that excitement. And so it's trying to create something for that excitement or the opposite side. Like I mentioned that life can appear boring. And so sometimes uh, officers choose to drink uh, because that numbs the boring feeling. So, so there are, there's, there's a spectrum here where it can be behavior that it's like, well, this is a part of the process, and then it can be at the other end of the spectrum where, where it can be problematic. So it sounds like it really can have an effect on the officer, and in turn, when the officer comes home, it could have an effect on them. So can you explain mm -hmm. how the loop and hypervigilance affect significant others, those types of relationships. Yeah, because if, a, well, in regard to hypervigilance, if the officer is coming down, I think it's, it's um, understandable that a spouse would be frustrated because they can't engage. I think that frustration is on both sides, though. I want to make sure to say that, that as spouses, it's not just, you know, our officer against, against us. It's very much about as a couple, it becomes frustrating that why are we not synced up? Why are we not on the same page? Why can we not connect? And so when, when couples aren't aware that this is underlying, it causes communication problems because we're making assumptions um, and the frustration. The OODA loop is really interesting, though, because, uh, well, at least I think, because uh, without understanding that that OODA loop process could be going on, I could be sitting in a restaurant where we're on a date with my, my husband and I could see him keep looking over to the side with his eyeballs or kind of turning over his shoulder and looking around. And my interpretation as a spouse would be something like, why do you, why do you keep looking around? Am I boring? Am I not interesting? Or even going to the extreme of saying, oh, are you checking somebody else out? And so that's a lot of times how it affects the communication and the relationship in general. I remember many times when, before I knew this, I remember many times looking at seeing my husband doing this and I looked at him and I said, okay, obviously I'm boring you, so never mind." And I would just shut down because I didn't understand that this was a process. He would say, I'm listening, I'm listening. I'm, I said, well, your eyes aren't showing that because we're used to being told that communication needs, I need to have direct eye contact with that communication. Well, the OODA loop itself <laughs> lends itself to not always having direct eye contact. This, this is also like the whole reason why 
uh, officers choose a strategic position in the restaurant. We joke about this all the time and it's like, oh yeah, we've got to go have this place in the corner. But this is actually the reason why. There, there, I always say there's a behavior, there's a, sorry, there's a reason for every behavior and this is the reason for the behavior. And, and so as a couple, I think we have to get curious about the reasons for certain behavior. And, and this is something I need to accommodate or is this something that uh, we need to address and problematic for our relationship. And the hypervigilance and the OODA loop are definitely aspects that need to be accommodated. At the same time, the officer needs to take responsibility and learn how to, to navigate that as well. So shifting gears a little bit, we've, we've clearly gone over how challenging communication can be at home. What are some common examples of unsuccessful communication? Unsuccessful communication overall, if we think about this, like just for anybody, it usually involves not listening and involves what John Gottman would call the four horsemen. He's done 40 years of research of what makes marriage work or what makes relationships work, not just marriage. Um, and he found in his research, he found four concepts that really impact communication negatively. And those are defensiveness, criticism, contempt, and stonewalling. And so those four elements, if they're within the communication in the relationship, will basically destroy it. So defensiveness is defending our action or behaviors. And so anytime that you feel uh, that feeling of like, but, but you need to understand where I'm coming from, or you need to understand why I did this, that in itself is defensiveness. That doesn't mean don't explain, there's just a certain way to do it that doesn't come across as defensiveness. Criticism, uh, I am in the South and I will tell you, I can criticize with a smile on my face and a sweetness in my voice, uh, but that doesn't mean it's not criticism. So criticism is telling somebody, you know, you're wrong, you're doing it wrong. Don't you think you should could be a criticism. Uh, contempt is the third one. Contempt is probably the most dangerous of all four. Contempt is a looking down upon. It can involve stockpiling hurt and then using it against them, against somebody. Um, contempt can be that thought in your brain of, oh my gosh, you are so ridiculous. That is the most stupidest thing I've ever heard. You can just be thinking that in your brain and that contempt can, and that tone comes out in your voice. And then finally, stonewalling. Uh, stonewalling is a shutdown. So many times in our brain, we have a, a flood of emotion. Our fight or flight response is going off. And, and one of the ways that we deal with conversation that we don't want to have is to just kind of stop talking and use those minimal cues like, uh-huh, uh-huh. So sometimes I think of like a teenager that's just trying to get through a situation and going, yeah, yeah, whatever, mom, that's, that's it. Um, so those, those four aspects really hurt communication and make an unsuccessful communication. You know, providing advice instead of listening, fixing instead of listening, and letting emotion take over instead of maybe taking a time out. Many times we start making emotional arguments. Like I mentioned, our fight or flight response goes off as opposed to staying in our frontal lobe to be able to listen and hear. And not managing our emotional response can lead to really unsuccessful communication. Keeping all of those difficulties in mind, can you provide us 
with any ways of turning communication so that it becomes successful? I think a, if I was to define it in some way, I think a successful communication is understanding where the other person's coming from and feeling understood. That's really, to me, the definition of successful communication. One of the easiest ways to do this is called um, the Rappaport intervention. Gottman uh, actually modified this intervention, and he calls it the Gottman Rappaport intervention. Rappaport was actually a, a negotiator during World War II, and he would do this with countries to help them hear each other and their opinions and to find common ground and then to work through the aspects that were not common ground. And it's a really super simple process, which is taking turns. Um, the one person makes notes about what the other person is saying. You try to be succinct. You stay out of those four horsemen and keeping communication in short spurts, as opposed to, I hear sometimes couples go for like, well, he talks for 30 minutes and then I'm supposed to respond to it and that doesn't work. So the whole process is let one person speak for a while, take notes. Um, like I mentioned before, summarize what's being said, get curious about what's happening um, or what the other person is saying and then validate anything that you can for that person. And then allow the other person to talk and do the same process. And it may seem elementary maybe to do that process or I've even heard people say well that's rude it really is a great way of keeping your brain on task and listening to what the other person is saying that's one of the easiest techniques that I would use to make communication more successful thank you that was great so changing things up a little bit there's a big struggle between the protection mechanisms of the job and a need to be vulnerable with your partner how might the job mentally spill over at home? So when we're, when we're specifically talk about protection mechanisms and vulnerability, it, it once again is about the conditioning of the brain. So like I mentioned, our brains are wired to protect us and to keep us safe. So part of that protection is to reject anything that perceives pain. Um, we might react, we might get defensive, we might get puffy. In the case of uh, law enforcement officers, many times they have to figure out how do I balance what's going on and what I see on a regular basis and not be scared all the time. The brain has to figure out what do I do with this. And so the brain dismisses these pain points or the difficult aspects of the job as um, BS is, is it's just that's BS and, and it pushes it away and it's a defense mechanism that our brain has. So that spills over at home that when a spouse maybe brings something up as uncomfortable, then they are going to push it away and say, nope, I reject that. That's BS because that's what their brain is being trained to do. Um, other mechanisms I've already kind of mentioned as far as controlling a situation. If there's something I can't control, that becomes really uncomfortable. There was a point in time a couple of years ago when I had a pending cancer diagnosis. And that was difficult because my husband had nobody to fight. He couldn't control that situation. There was nothing he could do. And so it was disruptive to his brain and 
hard because his brain's like, you've got to go fight this situation, but there's nothing to fight. So controlling a situation and when officers don't have control, it feels really, really uncomfortable. And many times they get upset or angry. Fixing it, like I mentioned, their, their job is to fix situations. And so when you cannot fix it, it becomes a problem. Um, and emotions are dangerous. Uh, I, I've mentioned that a little bit already, that there's, when I feel, that brings up the possibility for trauma in a situation or personalizing a situation which could possibly become trauma. So their brain learns how to displace or protect themselves from feeling. Many times when I'm working with officers in therapy, what I find is that they are what I call checked out from the neck down. They cannot feel anything within their body and that's their brain protecting them. So that vulnerability aspect, while important in a, in a marriage and a relationship to form intimacy, all of, all of these aspects spill over mentally at home. So you mentioned vulnerability. Is there any reason why vulnerability would seem so scary, especially at home for an officer? Vulnerability is scary to everybody. So it's not just officers. The, the definition, Brene Brown defines vulnerability as emotional risk or exposure. And I don't know a single person that's like, woohoo, emotional risk and exposure. So nobody is comfortable with vulnerability. So this isn't unique to officers. There is probably additional conditioning that prevents them from being vulnerable. But as we go through life, our brain collects dangers. And if any of us have been through any kind of traumatic situation, and traumatic, trauma doesn't have to be just sexual trauma or some kind of violence. It can be bullying. It could be the fact that I couldn't rely on somebody. Trauma is, there's a spectrum for trauma. And, and what our brain learns is, ah, don't trust people, don't share, have control. And so vulnerability in itself is scary for everybody. When you're talking about an officer, many times what they are doing, what their brain is conditioned to do is that they need to take care of the situation and they need to be, quote unquote, strong. So being seen as weak or vulnerable is not okay. It's not acceptable. It's culturally not all right. That's why um, it's hard for officers to speak up. Um, I think that culture is changing. It's, it's a slow turn. And I think various places in our country, it's more okay to talk about feelings than other places in our country. And so family culture or geographic culture is an aspect of that as well. I think the other big fear for officers in regard to becoming vulnerable or having that emotional risk of exposure is that I have to take off my emotional armor. Officers wear their tactical gear on a regular basis. And so to think about taking off those emotional, that emotional armor that keeps them safe on a regular basis is absolutely scary. Many people have that fear. Part of it is, okay, if I take it off, how do I get it back on? If I start to talk about what is painful, how do I make sure that I can close the floodgate? And that is, that is a skill. When we talk about vulnerability, it's not a way of living life. It's not about like, I'm going to go be vulnerable in every aspect of my life. It's about, hey, um, I want to share this thing and it, and it scares me. It feels like emotional risks and exposure. I'm going to be willing to do this because of blank. 
the reward has to outweigh the risk. The, the desire for connection with a spouse in this case, and we're talking about communication, the desire for connection, the desire for support has to outweigh the pain of being vulnerable. And so it's not just scary to officers, it's scary to everybody. And it's very much a process and a, and a learned behavior and a desire to do it. That is a part of what needs to happen. So you touched upon it at the end there, but so what are some of the best practices for overcoming a fear of vulnerability at home? When we're talking about overcoming the fear of vulnerability, I want to reframe that, I think, and say, learning how to be more authentic. And being authentic is being true to yourself, being true to your feelings, being true to your beliefs, as opposed to thinking about being vulnerable all the time. If we have the goal of being authentic, if we have the goal of increasing intimacy or connection, if I'm going to be real, which feels so much more comfortable, although sometimes difficult, then I can have greater resiliency, really. Part of becoming more authentic is being honest, and this is the vulnerable part, being honest with how you're afraid of being seen. So a spouse talking about or an officer talking about, hey, part of the reason I don't share is because I'm afraid I'm going to impact you. I'm afraid you're going to have trauma because of this. I'm afraid you're going to see me as weak. I'm afraid you're not going to see me as a man or as the dynamic woman that I am or that I think the superwoman that you think I am. So I think that's the first part of becoming more authentic in a relationship and embracing vulnerability is to be able to talk about what your fears are of how you're going to be seen by your spouse. Once you can do that, hopefully as a, as a partner, whatever side you're on, officer or as a, a spouse partner, that you can keep that in mind that, oh my gosh, part of what he doesn't or part of the way she doesn't want to be seen as weak and talk about, no, there's strength in sharing these things. I will see you as strong as always. You know, I, I'm in mental health. I do this on a regular basis. It was scary for me. I don't know what else to say. Scary for me when my husband one day came home, sat down, and I could tell that he was in so much pain. And I said, what's going on? You look like you're going to cry. And he just looked at me with these tears. I'm going to get teary-eyed. He looked at me with these tears welling up in his eyes. And that moment in me was like, oh crap, I'm not sure how to handle this. I immediately went into how do I fix this and trying to fix it as opposed to saying, okay, no, this is the part where I, I always say hold space. I make it okay for him to talk about these things. And I was able to move through that. It was just difficult. And so the number one thing I would say is have a conversation about how you would dread being seen by each other and support your spouse that, hey, no matter what, I'm, I'm not going to see you that way, that you can have these difficult conversations with me and that I can support you and that we can, it's better together than to do it alone. Many times I hear officers of like, well, I don't want to be a burden to my family. I don't want to be a burden to my spouse. And we get married to support. Most of most spouses that I know want to support their, their officers. And so strength is talking about difficult, having difficult conversation and strength is getting vulnerable. And it doesn't, do the relationship or your spouse any good to try to protect them or to, I'm going to say, unburden yourself on them. We're there to support. And that's 
what creates intimacy and connection and good communication. You talked about the supportive nature of families and significant others during all of this time, but as an officer, it can be somewhat scary or scary to the relationship themselves, the person in the relationship themselves to hear some of these stories. So how do you recommend officers work to communicate about their job without scaring their partner? I don't think it's the officer's job to not scare their partner. I think officers need to be able to have a safe place at home and need to be able to share in the way that they need to be able to share. We are, families are the, the greatest resiliency for officers. When we're talking about keeping officers mentally well, home needs to be the safest place. When home is a safe place, then officers have the, the capacity to go out and do what they need to do, knowing that they can come back home and decompress. So I don't think it's the officer's job to somehow craft conversation to keep their partner from experiencing fear. I think partners need to learn how to listen. Um, they need to learn how to uh, work through some of their own emotions, whether that is um, talking to a tenured spouse, whether that's talking to a mental health professional, um, that is fine. Uh, I think it's our job to listen to our spouses and allow them to speak however they need to. I think it's also okay for spouses to listen and to cry and to express emotion in regard to the way the officer may be feeling or even saying, gosh, honey, that scares me. I'm glad you're okay. Thank you so much for sharing. It, it's okay to express that. There probably needs to be more conversation around how to have those conversations. I would, I would never tell an officer to suck it up. I would never tell a spouse to suck it up. We have feelings and we need to be able to support each other in those feelings without having edited or softening or somehow people sometimes say sugarcoating a situation. Spouses can experience secondary traumatic stress. That is a possibility. It is sometimes more likely if a, if a spouse has also experienced some type of uh, trauma in their life, that a deep wounding trauma in their life, it could stir up old feelings. And that's something that as a couple, you might need to talk about. You might need to talk about like, okay, what are aspects of what I share that are difficult and why? Does this remind you of something? What do we need to do? Can we work together as a couple to talk about that? But going back to the original question, I, I don't think that officers need to change or adapt to their communication when it comes to what they need to share. Is there any research to suggest or talk about vicarious or secondary trauma and whether that plays a role in any of this? Absolutely. That, that's part of what I was alluding to. So secondary traumatic stress is a trauma that happens to an individual who hears it second Hand. So let me let me give you a situation. I'm in the DFW area. Um, wives that had a husband that were involved in the shooting in Dallas uh, now four years ago in 2016. While they were watching the news, if they didn't hear from their spouse for a while, if all of that fear could create trauma 
or hearing a situation and thinking about how my spouse is going to be injured or what happened or you know if there was a shooting i interviewed somebody for my podcast and we were talking about her experience of she's the spouse, her husband was shot, and she has her own set of trauma that she went through. So secondary traumatic stress is the trauma that's felt secondhand by somebody. Most of the time, secondary traumatic stress is not created just by hearing a story. It's created by somebody having their own experience as a part of another person's experience. So it's more likely in the event of a shooting or a critical incident in, if a spouse is involved in a critical incident or shooting, it's, it's a spillover, if you will. So that's kind of what's meant by vicarious trauma or secondary trauma. It's, I'm not directly being shot, but I, my husband, child, friend that I am incredibly close with was shot. And so I have my own experience. So when you're thinking about research, does it exist? Yes. And there is research suggesting that spouses are susceptible to this. Um, Just like there are police officers susceptible to PTSD, the majority of officers do not leave the field with PTSD. Uh, The majority of spouses or family do not wind up having secondary traumatic stress. I do want to mention just right here quickly that secondary traumatic stress or PTSD is not a lifelong sentence, that there is treatment and that people can can move through the, the trauma and have uh, resiliency from it. Thank you for all of that information. What are some of the good ways to discuss critical incidents and officer trauma with a spouse? So when I think of a good way, it's hard to define what good is because what's quote unquote good for one person is different from another person. So I think, first of all, when we're talking about critical incidences or trauma, I want to make sure that as a couple, you want to communicate what's going to be the plan if there is a critical incident that happens to your spouse. I, I think that's really important. Who's going to do the notification? Who do they want to show up? Who's going to drive them to the hospital if necessary? So before we talk about how to speak to them, I want to make sure that that couples have a plan and talk about, hey, hey, what needs to happen if something happens to me? So as far as discussing a critical incident or trauma, I'm going to take these as different situations. If, if an officer is discussing a critical incident, I would say be honest about the situation talk to them about their your experience, talk to them about what you're thinking or feeling, talk about what you're struggling with, talk about what you need. Sometimes I think because mental health is being talked about, suicide is being talked about, PTSD is really being emphasized. I think as spouses, we don't know how to interpret behavior. And it is totally okay if our spouse needs to, if our officer needs to have some time to decompress, to process, because the brain is trying to make sense of what's going on. And so as a spouse, it's okay if your officer is quiet. It's okay if your officer says, I just need some time right now. That is all okay. At some point in time, we need to check in with them. We need to say, hey, what's happening? What's going on? What are your thoughts? Is anything sticking with you? And and officers need to be willing to talk about what is sticking with them. It's really individual to determine what um, officers need and what spouses need in regard to this. 
When you're talking about trauma and talking about the impact of trauma, officers need to communicate. Please, please, please communicate if you are having dark thoughts. Please communicate if you're feeling anxious. Please communicate feelings within your body. And by that, I mean, what is your body experiencing? You don't necessarily have to label a feeling and find the word for it. You can just say, I don't know. I feel like I'm going to throw up all the time and my head hurts. That would be great in regard to communicating. As spouses, once again, we need to be careful. We need to be careful of like, just because there's dark thoughts, doesn't mean I need my officer is now suicidal and I need to throw in patient or, oh my gosh, he needs therapy. Sometimes just talking about thoughts is good. Then talking about, okay, what is it that we need to do? How does it, how is it that I need to support you? So when officers are speaking to spouses, what I really encourage is honesty. I encourage that vulnerability. Talk about the things that are difficult, have difficult conversation, talk about worries, talk about fears Talk about what's sticking with like holding on and that you're having a hard time letting go of. We don't want to re-traumatize as well. So as spouses, we also need to be careful of, well, let's re-talk about that, that situation. Some, sometimes it's more triggering and more traumatizing or it can be re-traumatizing to bring it all back up again. So as our brain processes through, we might not have to talk about everything. It might just be a couple of things. Like I said, I encourage officers just to be honest, to be open, to be vulnerable, to talk about their emotions, their feelings, and what they're struggling with. I would also encourage officers to ask their spouse what scares them. What are their emotions or feelings about this as well? They don't need to fix those feelings. They just need to listen to them. I think many times officers think I can't share because this is going to impact my spouse emotionally. Of course, it's going to impact your spouse emotionally and they're entitled to their emotions. It's okay. Many times as spouses, we wind up crying for our officer or being mad for our officer um, or feeling scared. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that an officer doesn't share or can't share because these feelings are elicited by the spouse. That's actually all the questions I have for you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me on. This project was supported in whole or in part by cooperative agreement number 2018-CKW-XK-008 awarded by the U.S. Department of Justice, Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services. And as always, the opinions contained herein are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific individuals, agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the speakers, IACP, or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can visit learn.theiacp.org slash podcast to view show notes from today's episode and to find additional ways you can learn from leaders in the field.